Hello and welcome back to Series 2 of Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda and with me in the studio is John. In our weeks off, we've not been doing nothing. We've actually lined up loads of amazing interviews for you. Who have yes, we got? Yes, we have. Will Self, writer and thinker extraordinaire. And we, Walker. And Walker, Don't cyclist forget. as well. He has a lovely Brompton. We have interviewed the Irish novelist Eamon McBride. We both love her book, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. We have the sculptor Conrad Shawcross, who makes these amazing mechanical, huge constructions, robots as well. Yeah, we're even going to go to a studio and record the sound for you. Excited about that. Who else? Well, today, today is who today, else? Today is a big one. Today is Jude Law. Old Blue Eyes. The actor. I'm sure you've heard of him. <laughs> Old Blue no, Eyes. Needs no introduction. Needs no introduction. So we're going to hear from Jude Law and we're also going to be talking about Donald Trump and the architecture of doom. So, Griselda, we're back in the studio. Yes, we are, in our lovely padded blue cell. Yeah, paint a picture. So, we're surrounded by four walls. Blue walls. Yeah, navy blue, <laughs> with a big clock, which always freaks us out because we always run out of time. <laughs> a big flashing red sign saying, Mike Live. Yeah, so do you feel so podcast here we are. rusty? We're back. Uh, no, no, I feel excited. I feel good. I've been listening to lots of podcasts Let in our six weeks off. S-Town, obviously. S-Town has been a big hit, yes. <laughs> S-Town from the from the makers of Serial. Although I would say not as good as Serial. That was a lot better. Yeah. But, um, John B. McLemore, interesting character though. If you haven't listened to S-Town, it's quite interesting. I normally listen to loads of football podcasts, but Arsenal's capitulation which happens at this time every single year has uh mean yeah so i'm listening it's to too painful your, yeah i can't listen to it anymore anyway aside from podcasts you turned 30 yes i did thanks for wishing me a happy birthday or rather forgetting to wish me a happy yeah, birthday yeah I, I, I do feel bad about that but there's shout outs it's to make a, up for that yeah it's a big one it's a this, big one and equals, everybody forgot this is 10 times better than a message on the day <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah okay yeah you've been going to loads of weddings i've, I've been, been going, going to loads of, of weddings and weddings and we're that it's age that, it's that time of life but we have been doing other things other than go to weddings we've been to a few shows at tate we've been to wolfgang tillman's amazing so photographer cool. i've seen the film I've been twice you've been twice yeah well, we're is, like one minute away aren't we so it is right next to our office mm. but that's um that is dedication and i've been seeing some great films as well i recently saw get out which is a phenomenal film by Jordan Peele. I don't know if you have you seen it, John. No. It's um. I know who he is. We should get him on the pod. We'll try to. That would be amazing. It's a really brilliant film about a black guy with a white girlfriend. He goes back to her house. Lots of weird shit goes down. It's kind of like a spoof on a gothic sort of horror film, but also like racial metaphor. It's so funny. Very brilliant. I'm feeling really bad now because I don't think I've been to the cinema since season one of the podcast. <laughs> the, the podcast forces well, we, you into more culture. <laughs> definitely. We've binged on all of those Oscar films. Remember that week we had to watch like six films in a week? Yeah. Well, you had to watch I them. I was like waking up week, at 6am yeah. and like, watching them on my laptop. <laughs> well, I mean, I haven't been totally in touch, though, in terms of like, actually, my evenings have mostly been spent watching series one and two of The Bridge, which came out about six years ago, yeah. but is... Finger on the pulse. It, my finger is firmly on the pulse. The <laughs> I'm here for the latest in film I just and tell TV. everyone it's really good and you should watch it okay but it's good to be back we've got some really fun stuff planned as we mentioned yes we do and today we will be discussing the architecture of doom as we mentioned which involves Donald Trump's wall and um, other walls and defensive structures Donald Trump if you haven't heard is building a wall the wall is getting designed right now a lot of people say oh oh Trump was only kidding with the wall. I wasn't kidding. I don't kid. 
I don't kid. I, I watch this, and they say I was kidding. No, I don't kid. I don't kid about things like that, I can tell you. No, we will have a wall. It will be a great wall, and it will do a lot of — will be a big help. Okay, and with us today is Edwin Heathcote, the FT's architecture critic. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Trump's been talking about this wall for quite a long time now. I think we've all heard more than enough. It's one of the most contested projects in America's architectural history. It's got to be 2,000 miles long. The entries are in. There were how many of them? 400 entries? Mm -hmm. 400, yeah. Yeah, so what did, what did you guys both think when you even you know, first heard about this wall? Well, it was such a, a keystone of the Trump campaign that he has to do something. It's a mad idea. It's the, absolutely the wrong way to address Mexico, which is the country that the U.S. trades with the most and depends upon the most. So did you, when you heard about it, did you laugh, <laughs> cry? I mean, I think with these things with Trump, you're always half laughing and mostly crying. It's a symbol, isn't it? It's not really going to help immigration, but it will it will reassure the people who voted for Trump that this is what they want. They want a symbol of yeah. America first. So what did you actually think of the entries? Well, I think if anything stood out from the entries for the wall, it was the shockingly low quality. They really looked kind of DIY. They were very amateurish, actually, in a way. I suppose there's a fitting quality that this is a kind of spontaneous idea. It's one of, you know, that's what's come out, that there hasn't been proper thinking about what this thing is, about its significance, about its scale, about the the complexity of having to build through this extraordinarily remote uh, kind of hostile terrain. 2,000 miles from coast to coast, obviously. It's 2,000 miles the going through. Is difficult, isn't absolutely, it? going through some of the most challenging terrain on the planet. Some of it goes through the Rio Grande, you know, hundreds of miles of it actually passes through the centre of a river. Which side did the wall get <laughs> built on? Um, it's a very, very unresolved question. And there's issues for sort of wildlife conservation. There's private borders as well, it seems like. There are many problems to this. It's not a yeah. simple task at all. Yeah, I Absolutely. think that that's reflected in the way the price has escalated for the, for the budget <laughs> of this project. At the beginning, they were saying 2.6 billion. Absolutely. Then it went up to 12, then 15. And now estimates are as high as 38 billion. So it's that's right. And I mean, hundreds of miles of it goes through private property in Texas. And somehow you can't quite imagine that the, the government comes in to Texas ranches and says, we're buying your, you know, we want your land. <laughs> They're not going to like that. It's just not that kind of place. And it seems like most of the most prestigious architectural firms and engineering firms aren't really touching this project. They're not submitting their entries. What would you say the ethics are of doing a project like this? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's fair to say that I didn't recognise any of the names that I encountered on the list. Yeah, though they all seem like really middling kind of practices, don't they? One of them is formed by a bunch of Vietnam veterans. And, That's right. You know, it's really That's kind right. of expressing the fears of middle America. There are <laughs> yeah. all these kind of bizarrely named kind of companies. Well, most of them are practices that seem to have been set up specifically for this purpose. They're off there, one guy in a garage thinking, well, you know, why shouldn't I enter? And one guy's designed a kind of uh, replica of the Great Wall of China. So we're not going to see kind of a Rogers or Zaha Hadid style practice coming no. anywhere near this kind of project. No, and that, and that addresses the second part of uh, your question, Griselda, which was about the ethics. And really, this is a kind of fuzzy area. And I can't imagine any of the big architects uh, who are all kind of left liberal in their politics, really. I can't imagine them touching this with a barge pole and probably the same with the big engineering companies. On the other hand, there are the big construction companies who probably would be interested because this is a 
this is a job of a scale that could keep a construction company going for you know many many years ironically the companies who would build it would be the mexican construction yeah. companies because they uh, only they're big enough <laughs> and they're in the right place but not paying for it the americans would pay for it <laughs> i think also i mean it's going to be difficult for Trump, it seems like it might even be difficult for him to get the money for this. I mean, the funding was not included in a recent spending bill passed by Congress. And he did tweet after that, don't let the fake media tell you that I've changed my position on the wall. It will get built and help stop drugs, human trafficking, etc. <laughs> so he's saying that it's going to happen, whether it does and whether it's also what he promised. I mean, Eddie, do you think that we will get this sea to shining sea, 30 foot concrete wall? No, I don't yeah. think anyone I don't think anyone actually does, but he is compelled in a way to build something because he's promised it. You know, it's his big campaign promise. In some ways you could argue that to build a section of the wall is the easiest of the things that he's promised. It's easier than than repealing Obamacare or renegotiating the trade deals or bringing the industry back to America because he could build a couple of hundred miles of wall of the easier bits and say, "Well, look, we've started. I said we were going to start building the wall and we did." But there hasn't been an intelligent reasoning of what the role of the wall is. And in a way, there hasn't been a proper discussion of what the border is, because you know a lot of the border runs through cities, like in San Diego and Tijuana, for instance. You know that really is a kind of symbiotic city. Tijuana doesn't really exist without San Diego, because that's where the people who work in San Diego go. And San Diego can't survive without the labour from Mexico. Well, one of the rules, which was so absurd, was that the wall must be tough enough to withstand attacks from sledgehammer, carjack, pickaxe, chisel battery-operated impact tools, propane or butane, or other similar handheld tools for up to four hours. But at the same time, <laughs> that it must be aesthetically pleasing. So <laughs> that's kind of an impossible task. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, in a way, a wall is a, is a very primitive technology. So it's a very visible motive, but it's a kind of defunct technology in that landscape. So now, you know, the, the Border Security Agency is, is looking at drone patrols, all kinds of satellite mapping and, and you know actually much more humane cheaper and less intrusive technologies for a similar job in the piece that you wrote for the ft you mentioned in some ways the wall could be seen as a sort of opportunity and perhaps there could be in some of the proposals probably not the ones which are going to win but some of them suggest that there's a kind of opportunity for public space around the wall itself I mean, you're absolutely right. They are provocative proposals more than more than serious <laughs> proposals. Statements yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, they won't get through. No, but it's if good any, that if these any statements are being made. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, one of them is a is a transport system, is a kind of super fast monorail or a super fast train that takes you from one coast to the other in a in a couple of hours. Sort of on top of the wall, or right, exactly. Yeah. In fact, yeah. in fact, I think it doesn't propose a wall. It prov- it, it proposes a binational or a geonational zone, which is a shared space, and I think actually that. Although it's an unrealistic project, there is something interesting in that idea of a of a shared space because a wall is not is not a two dimensional object. A wall has depth to it, and whatever they build probably will be a uh, no man's land that you have in a war zone in a way, and and that can be like the demilitarized zone in North Korea yeah. or the Berlin Wall, the space between. That could be a fruitful zone that is is used for something creative or constructive. One of the interesting requirements was that the wall should look good from the US side you know which is a very <laughs> vague <laughs> it's a it's a very vague statement but it shows in a way that there is at the background here an idea that what would happen if actually this thing was was rather beautiful 
none of us really are going to acknowledge that possibility because we don't really think it's going to happen. But we could think of the the labor creation programs in the 1930s of the New Deal that Roosevelt uh, instituted, the Hoover Dam and these kind of huge engineering projects, which sounded, you know, visionary and almost impossible at the time, but ended up with extremely beautiful, extremely useful objects. I know the one that stood out for me, if this wall is going to be built, was this one by... um the design firm JM Design Studio of Pittsburgh, and they're an all-woman team of designer and artists, and their plan was to, <laughs> was to put together three million hammocks strung across the border, <laughs> hanging gracefully from kind of 30-foot trees for anyone to use as they please. So that one gets my vote. I think that gets my vote. I don't <laughs> think it will get Trump's vote, but we'll see. You could, though. <laughs> yeah. I'll be all for that. There is a lot of scope here for provocation and kind of installation art being proposed in a kind of jocular way. Uh, because it's such a kind of dumb, two-dimensional idea that the only response to it in a lot of ways is the kind of intellectual sardonic response. And I suppose, I mean, the idea of building a wall speaks to other types of architecture, which is part of this defensive kind of disciplinary (laughs) style of architecture. Is this part of a trend that we're seeing in the urban landscape? The wall is, I think, very much a part of a broader cultural design phenomenon which we could call the theatre of security you know it's not my phrase that's a phrase that's been used but it's to do with the demonstration of security you know don't worry everything will be okay this is an aesthetic part of an aesthetic and engineering project to make people feel safe the other very interesting statistic is by far the majority of mexicans who are illegal immigrants in the, in the US are there because they overstayed work visas. They didn't yeah, you know, they're, cross they're the deserts. The wall, <laughs> absolutely not. So this is, you know, absolutely a kind of symbolic symbolism? thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are points obviously where there does need to be a border. You know, no no one disputes that. But this really is a kind of overkill. The interesting thing is that although walls are this very um, kind of outdated medieval infrastructure, they're still being built a lot. I read that so when the Berlin Wall fell in eighty nine. There were fifteen border walls around the around the world. There are now seventy, and Hungary's putting up a wall to stop migrants. And yet, the the walls that we kind of think of are sort of like the Great Wall of China, Hadrian's Wall, even the Peace Wall in Belfast, which is now a kind of tourist attraction. You can go and sort of the read same the as graffiti. Bits of the Berlin Wall, right? Yeah, exactly. You go and sort of take pictures of it, mm. and these things are, you know, they're ruins. They they don't serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, in a sense, in if this wall gets built in whatever form it takes, what will we be, how will people be looking back on it? The space where a wall has been, it can be a very creative zone in the city. So most of the European historic cities were walled. And then when that wall was taken down, usually in the uh, 18th and 19th century, there was space for, for either a large public space, a park in Vienna, it was the Ringstrasse. So the whole kind of way we understand the plan of Vienna is the Ringstrasse that was the city walls. All the cultural institutions were built around that newly freed up space. You know, elsewhere in, in, in Berlin, as you say, the spaces around the wall have become, you know, arguably the most interesting spaces in the city. And they freed up this kind of territory for exploring new ways of, of looking at the city. And, you know, they, they retain the fragments which allow you to reflect on the mistakes of the past. And do you think it is like this kind of architecture design is being replicated in cities? Like we've talked before about the US Embassy in London, which is this kind of one billion modernist glass cube protected by an earth bank and a semicircular lake and bomb resistant glazing. You know, this kind of defensive architecture is Mm. very 
in mm. your face, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the first building in you know in London to, to feature a moat for eight hundred <laughs> years. I mean, there's something so kind of medieval about that. It's easy to parody in a way because it sounds so kind of overprotective, but but it is a real problem. So what do architects and, and urban planners do when there is this very real threat of, of terror in the in the city now, you know, with what you know, how do you defend against that kind of mania in a way? You know, it's 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 a, it's an extremely difficult thing to defend against. The problem is when the defensive mentality spreads through into all areas so you know where there is a window a sill or a ledge they have anti-homeless spikes so people can't sleep on it you know people are being treated like pigeons yeah benches are becoming shallower so people can't lie on them that's right um, that's right entryways are sloped so you would roll down if you would fall asleep on them yeah we're seeing this kind of the street furniture of our cities and the more more you notice it i mean once you know about it you sort of Mm. see it everywhere don't you yeah and that is very much against the spirit of the city so what is what is the city and who is it for yeah because it's not like um we're putting up these spikes to deter people from sleeping who are homeless and then also building shelters where they can sleep Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of Mm -hmm. where do these people go they just get pushed to the fringes and it's sort of out of sight out of mind often when we talk about architecture we're talking about amazing buildings and we're talking about it in quite a positive way or we're assessing a building, you know, for its aesthetic, you know, contribution to the way we live. But um, are more firms having to consider, you know, incorporating elements of defensive architecture into their plans? Is this something that's taught at universities more? I'm, I'm pretty certain it's not taught. Architecture in particular is a very idealistic yeah. field. When you study architecture, you know, in a way, that is your opportunity to explore the unrealistic. In a way, that's the irony of architecture. Is that's the that's your one chance uh, to understand what would happen if you did this, which actually would probably never happen in the yeah. real world. When you finally get into the real world, then you're, you know, you, then you absolutely hit your face into, into yeah. the wall of kind of corporate culture. Yeah, I guess when you're, selling a, yeah, things, when you're yeah. selling a career in architecture to someone, you're not going to be like, all right, mate, you're going to be designing big metal bollards for the rest of your life. No, like, <laughs> that's right. But, but that, think, you know, that is the reality now. For it it is the reality. But, uh, but in a way, a lot of this stuff, the bollards and the benches and all the rest of it is being left to engineers, to kind of traffic engineers and uh, landscape architects and not necessarily to architects. Now architects have the control over the over the building but what happens around the building is itself a kind of no man's land of design. You know, you could argue that actually the space around buildings in, in the city of London or in, in downtown Manhattan is getting better actually. You know, you could certainly argue that when a, a big building is is built now in a in a contemporary city, actually there is much more thought given to what happens at ground level than there was a generation ago or two generations ago. Hope, <laughs> this tiny sliver of hope. Hope for the future. Yeah. We didn't actually think this next interview was going to happen. Our guest was coming from North London to the river, got stuck in traffic, and we thought he just wasn't going to turn up. We were very disappointed. Yeah, it was on, it was off, it was on, it was off. It was a stressful 40 minutes. We were standing by the door of the FT, scanning the street, and suddenly... Lo and behold, there he was. The clouds parted, Jude Law was striding over Southwark Bridge. Yeah, it was a proper kind of like <laughs> slow motion chariots of fire moment, wasn't it? It, it was a surreal moment. And then he was here... Like, it, he was in the same room as us. It was quite a warm day, he was wearing no socks, 
loafers. He had brogues with no brogues. socks. Brown brogues, I think. Yeah, really kind of nice. He had like a light black silk bomber it jacket was, it on. Was, it was silk, yeah. Tweedy trousers. No socks was the of. thing I remember. Yeah, that, that was the big takeaway from what he was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell we're not... It was what uh, he wasn't wearing. Yeah, we're not fashion journalists, sorry. sorry. <laughs> but the reason why we're interviewing him now is because he's in this amazing new play at the Barbican called Obsession. Directed by Ivo Van Hover, who was one of our very early interviews on the podcast, in fact. Yeah, uh, in all the reviews of the play, everyone refers to Ivo Van Hover as the hottest director in Europe at the moment. He was on the podcast. Yeah. You heard him here first. Yeah. So Obsession is a film, a Visconti film from 1943. It's this kind of very like melodramatic tale of love and lust and affairs. Jude Law plays Gino, who is this sort of tramp who falls in love with a woman who's married to a much older man, very unattractive. Jude Law, obviously very attractive. So that's the kind of dynamic that's set up. Yeah, things quickly turn dark. John, what did you think of the play? I really enjoyed it, actually. It. Yeah. yeah, I thought the set was stunning. The music was amazing. Like when, As soon as we came out, we both said to each other, it's quite kind of cinematic. Cinematic, definitely, yeah. It had these huge projection screens, which is something that Evo does in his productions. Well, the audio was amazing, but visuals kind of as part of the set made it feel quite different to kind of a lot of the theatre I go to anyway, which is quite hammy and a bit mm, uh, yeah, I think I think maybe you go, go to the yeah. wrong theatre, but this was cool. A very minimal set, video projections, Jude Law centre stage, often without his shirt on. It was very a kind of muscular yeah. uh, visual production, I would <laughs> muscular, say. Muscular, literally, as well. Griselda was uh, yeah, focusing very closely on Jude throughout. <laughs> no, it's really brilliant, though, actually. I was yeah, quite surprised. Yeah, and Jude Law himself, he was excellent. He can really act. He's been in lots of films over the years, some excellent, some not excellent, I would say. That's par for the course. When your filmography extends to kind of 20 pages, there are obviously going to be a few duds There are a few there. duds in there. But yeah. one of his best, which we watched again, was The Talented Mr Ripley. Yeah, which we re-watched. Um, I couldn't believe it when weekend. I asked you when it came out. 1999. Oh my God. That it's, makes yeah. me feel so old. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an old film and actually it does seem pretty dated. The title sequence is very 90s, the kind of colour scheme, the, the font style that it uses. But the film itself, I think, is dated pretty well. Yeah, he was in an all-star cast for that film. Kind of Philip Seymour Hoffman was brilliant in that as well. Matt Gwyneth Damon. Paltrow, Kate Blanchett. Yeah, so yeah. it's a real kind of blast from the past of Hollywood glamour. It's serious old-school glamour set in the 50s, Italy. Everything is very sumptuous, beautiful, dark. And that's one of two films he's received an Oscar nomination for. In the other, he played a wounded American Civil War soldier in Cold Mountain. I also used to um, obsessively watch Closer, the video, when I was younger. He plays actually a character not totally dissimilar to Gino, has a slightly kind of childlike, obsessive quality. I mean, he's so prolific, isn't he? He's um, a movie yeah. I loved a couple of years ago. It was The Grand Budapest Hotel. He's really good in that. He's brilliant. He's, yeah. he's brilliant. And something he says in the interview is that as he gets older he gets given a chance to play these slightly more interesting eccentric characters and then recently has a very interesting character in The Young Pope in Sorrentino's HBO series. Yeah, interesting is one way of putting it. Yeah, it's so quite dark, quite messed tw up. Twisted, yeah. So he plays The Young Pope, Lenny Bellardo, this American new pope and he only drinks cherry coke he refuses kind of italian things he makes all these faux pas and it gets it gets quite sort of dark yeah broadly it's kind of about the politics of the vatican and the kind of internal feuding and the, the intricacies of that system it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff and very very beautifully made very lavish as you'd expect from sorrentino
And another massive role that he has coming up is as Dumbledore in the sequel to Fantastic Beasts. So he's got a lot going on right now. Yeah, he's always in the news. He has so much going on, but he's always he's often in the news for kind of really muddy, horrible reasons too, right? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to be in the news yeah. as much as he is. I mean, I do feel I him like today to I googled him before we came on, and there's a ridiculous story in one of the tabloids about rogue builders who conned his nan out of sixty thousand pounds. I mean, it's like no matter what he does, yeah. he is in the news. <laughs> I mean, we've never had a guest on like this before, right, have we? Who generates so much publicity. Yeah, no, I think it's fair to say he is our most A-list guest. Yeah. He was like one of the central figures in the phone hacking scandal as well a few years back. Yeah, and yeah, his relationship with the media, it's fair to say, I think, has been quite sort of fraught over the years. Yeah. But, you know, he was happy to come and do our interview. We are the FT. We do have standards. You did ask for your photo to be taken with him, though. <laughs> I may have got Couldn't a selfie. Resist. Yeah, Couldn't hold back. <laughs> I've been acting quite a few years now, 20-something, maybe more. It's interesting, my relationship with it has certainly changed. I think, I think when I started out, I thought I found it easy. It seemed to be something that, at the time, came naturally to me. But I think looking back, I don't know that I was very good. What I did have was confidence and a sort of natural ability and a curiosity. And then I think I went through a time when I was aware of my inadequacies and w worked a lot harder than I'd ever worked before. And that just meant doing a huge amount of homework. Do I ever get stage fright? I'm terrified talking about that because I don't think I ever have. And the idea of it scares me, but planting that seed because the possibility is always there. I think preparation, rehearsal, and really working yourself into the ground before you start is so that you never get stage fright. I mean, that's certainly my process. I feel I have to be so confident and so sure that I know everything, even if things go wrong, that I have a way around them and that I can handle it, that I, I'm therefore not scared. I'm actually excited to bring an audience in. And if you like, share with them what it is we've created. Actually, that's not true. I did have a peculiar panic once in New York when I was playing Hamlet. And we'd already done a hundred or so performances in, in the West End and gone to Denmark. It was right at the beginning of the play and the way Michael Grandage directed it, the lights went up and there was just Hamlet alone on the stage with this sort of flurry of hellish kind of words and sounds that ended in a sort of a storm that then cut to the very first scene. It was like it was all in his head. And whilst I sat there in the dark waiting, I had one of those doubts. What am I doing? What, how can I do this? And I remember hearing the audience coming in and suddenly remembering or realising that no one out there knew any of the lines. And therefore I was the only person who could possibly do it. So I was, and it sort of calmed me suddenly, but I did have a moment of doubt, I suppose. But it's the only time, hopefully. My job as an actor is to be available to try out
out anything the director wishes. I'm not someone, and I never really have been, one who, who turns up with a process. This is my process and I'm sorry, this is how I work. This is what is required for me to do what I do. There are always hurdles I have to jump for myself that I, that I keep to myself. If you trust the director enough, if you believe in the piece enough, then ultimately you're there to, I think, offer up your flexibility as an actor. And it's like being able to offer different colours to a painter or different sounds to a musician. It's like being able to be the, the musician's instrument in a way. I never really felt like I embraced the romantic lead to begin with. I've, I, I think you could probably say out of 30 or 40 films I've played maybe two romantic leads I suppose on stage maybe two out of 20 odd plays so I never really felt like it was uh, a part or a genre of parts that I was stuck in it was one which I felt I was being pulled in towards through public perception or media perception but wasn't really one that I was necessarily doing in my work I do think the 20s and 30s for actors and actresses are a minefield where you have to avoid being typecast as anything whether you're the sort of you know the quirky friend or the good looking lead or the studious next door neighbour I mean unfortunately you're constantly being categorised and if you're interested in variety and trying out different types of characters which is the reason I wanted to act in the first place then you, you have to dodge those bullets as they fly but I think what happens is the older you get you're just not offered those parts anymore because you're the age to play the father <laughs> or not so much the father but someone who's at least lived a slightly more seasoned life and characters therefore do become or can become more interesting. Whether you're considered good-looking or odd-looking or interesting-looking can be both a blessing and a burden for an actor. Character actors who you could say are, I don't know, either odd-looking or, or unique-looking could work all the time, but equally you, they could say to you, yeah, but I'm never offered the lead role. You know, leading actors who are considered good-looking would say, yeah, but why am I always been playing the boring, good-looking leading guy? I want to be the character. I want to play the guy with the broken nose and no teeth. I mean, there are ups and downs to both. I think most actors would say that there's something fascinating about roles with dark sides. I mean, but you're always looking really, I think, for um, a character that just has depth, whether that's a dark side and a light side or a secret or something maybe that's never investigated but, but adds a, a richness and um, a complexity. It's always hard looking back to try and pinpoint a particular role that was easily said to be like the, the hardest role or the most complex. I mean, I could list a few that, re that somehow required a, a huge amount of work unpicking 
and understanding before I took them on. Hamlet was obviously one. I would say Lenny Bellardo, actually, the young Pope, because what was tricky about Lenny was how little he shows and yet how much is going on in his head and his heart. To begin with, the challenges that faced certainly the actors in this new play, Obsession, was the sparsity of text. The actual written word runs at about, I think it's about 50 pages, it's not much more than that. So starting with very little on the page, you're, you're really looking for bare, almost primary colours of a character. But I was also just trying to find the um, what was at the heart of this man. And in the end, what I came up with was a desire to escape. And in a way, that pulls against Hannah, played by Helena Rain, her desire to remain and create security. So the two meet, they fall in love, but both are pulling in opposite directions. When I talk about Gino having a desire to escape, you ultimately have to ask yourself, what's he escaping from? And what slowly bubbles up is this inclination to violence and a sort of innocence with regards to passion. Once he figures out he can't live without this woman, the way he throws himself wholeheartedly into the affair and into the relationship is quite innocent in a way. Naive. How do I learn my lines? Well, it's curious because I learn them differently for a play than how I learn them for a film. I mean, I like to familiarize myself with the play before I go into rehearsal, but you usually learn it on your feet whilst blocking any given scene. Now, the physicalization of the scene, to me, helps create some kind of a pattern in your brain. And someone told me once that a cast who had been running a play for a year had time off, were reassembled, and when they sat round and tried to run it again, no one remembered their lines. When they stood up and acted it out, they all remembered their lines. It's like a, f a physical imprint. And I had to learn all my lines for Evo's play before we started. So what I did was I just started, I went walking. I walked and walked and walked for hours every day running the lines in my head. And the physical action somehow helped remember the lines. With films, it's slightly different. I tend to learn sort of scene by scene depending on how we go along. And what I learn instead is the journey of the character because you're usually filming it out of sequence. So you create an emotional map that the scenes are then applicable to and you learn them sort of day by day. But I, there's no real, I don't know, I've learned all sorts of weird little tricks, Some and sometimes they help, sometimes they don't help. Movement, though, I would say, contributes a huge amount for me. If I wasn't acting, what would I be doing with my life? I don't know. I really, I think about that a lot, and I just took quite a considerable amount of time away from acting to try and ask myself that very question 
and I ended up just reading loads of books and going to the theatre a lot. I mean, I have dreams of writing. I have dreams of painting. I have dreams of being a musician. I've, I've learnt, started learning the piano, but first of all, all that stares me in the eyes now, if I ever pick up a pen to write or a brush to paint or sit down at a piano, is, is how unable I am. That's because I've never really applied myself in that way and acting has dominated over that period of time so it seems to be a very natural calling to me or at least the one place where I feel confident and happy and able my dear friend Anthony Minghella the late Anthony Minghella said to me once something that that rang very true to me too he said for someone very lazy I'm always busy I think if I wasn't acting I'd probably be lying around reading (laughs) not doing an awful lot um Without the excuse of work, I don't know that I'm really very good at doing anything other than what I do. That's all for this week. You can read Eddie Heathcote's piece on who's going to build Trump's wall online at ft.com slash lifeandarts. And Jude Law is starring in Obsession at the Barbican in London until the 20th of May. Next week, we'll talk about which decade is the best of your life, your 30s or your 60s. And you'll also hear from the poet laureate of Twitter, Patricia Lockwood, about growing up in the American Midwest with a gun-toting Catholic priest for a father. And you can subscribe to everything else on Acast, Stitcher, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonia. And our music is composed and produced by Fatum. 